JMV here with Brian Kahn from Floors to Your Home. Fans, if you're shopping for flooring of any kind, you need to check these guys out. You're going to have the most incredible, totally hassle-free shopping experience ever. JMV, we really appreciate you saying that. That's our goal every day, to offer our customers a quick, easy, and hassle-free experience at all of our Floors to Your Home locations. Fans, it works like this. You see the product you like. It's going to be cheaper than anywhere else. That's for sure. Then you can immediately take it home with you or have it installed. That's right. No hassle, no special order. Just see it, buy it, and take it home, or have it installed. Like three rooms of hardwood, laminate, or waterproof flooring starting at just 349 and they have everything in stock. I'm doing my whole house, and believe me, this is the best shopping experience you'll ever have. Three convenient locations, Avon, Noblesville, and Brookville Road. Who gives the quickest, easiest, and most hassle-free buying experience? Floors to your home. That's who. Chances are, if you're listening now, you also made the Midday Show part of your Tuesday afternoon. That was hosted by a good friend of mine and a, a guy that is no stranger to this station. He's no stranger to a microphone, period. His name is Greg Rakestraw of the ISC Sports Network, Indy 11, Indianapolis Colts. I'm not going to list his LinkedIn page because we'd be here for the next hour, but he joins us now on the guest line. And Rake, did I hear you call me a colleague around 1.30 today? Because I am absolutely honored. I was in the car listening. I, I am honored to be considered a colleague of the Greg Rakestraw. So thank you. Yeah, of course. I mean, we were coworkers at two different places. I didn't have a chance, you know, when uh, I referenced earlier about this was going to be like the 950 doubleheader. You know, on the fan today, needed uh, to see if Macaulay or Blackman are available to make an appearance on the morning show. We could have hit the trifecta on the show today, dude. I think the last time we had a Pacers draft conversation on an Indianapolis radio show, we were talking about whether they should take a point guard or Tyler Hansbro. That's how long it's been. <laughs> I, think, I think it was. Hey, I keep seeing here this Paul George guy from Fresno State. Yeah. Nobody knows who he is. <laughs> is that going to work out for the Pacers at ten? I don't know. Uh, time flies. Time flies when you're having fun. That's for sure. Uh, Pacers in a good spot though. Here entering Thursday, I, I guess in the the pantheon of sports problems to have too many draft choices is, is kind of a good place to be. No. Correct. In other words, I think they have made progress quicker uh, than they had anticipated. And, you know, we talked about, I talked about this in the show earlier, that, you know, Kevin Pritchard has had his hand forced in terms of making a lot of moves because of Paul George seven, eight years ago now, Victor Oladipo three or four years ago now. But let's also acknowledge the moves he's been able to make, even kind of on a secondary scale, to bring in the proper pieces. You know, Aaron Neesmith was kind of a throw-in as part of the Malcolm Brogdon deal. And the Pacers simply get out of Brogdon's contract was like the most important part of it. I think Neesmith, if, if not a starter, is a rotational piece. You know, the Pacers basically got Jordan War at the trade deadline because they had cap room. And I think he can be a guy that's maybe the eighth or ninth player, you know, on the rotation. So they've, they've done well. And I think the fact that they can't fit five draft picks in, um, you know, two, a year after a 25 win season, Kind of tells you they got some foundational pieces put together. So, you know, I I I think it's it's an impact player at seven, and it's and it's a veteran. I think that's what they're looking for. Anything else, you know, second round might be a draft and stash guy, or, or there could be a trade for future picks if somebody wants to move up and willing to give up future capital. I think the Pacers will be in that conversation the next couple of days. And given the fact that they're looking for, as you said, an impact player at seven. And they also have the roster crunch that they have. To me, Rake, my, my viewpoint on this is that I, I think a trade's coming because anything's sure. possible, I guess. But out of Taylor Hendricks and Jarris Walker and Grady Dick, like I, I don't really see – I see useful NBA players. I don't see impact-level players there with the guys that have been linked to the Pacers. Sure, and, and, and I'm not going to try to pretend that, that I am, you know – completely checked into the major college basketball scene outside of the Big Ten at this point. I'm not. Um, so, you know, I can spit facts at you about Jairus Walker or Taylor Hendricks, and I've spent a lot of time watching, you know, those two in the American Athletic Conference this year. Now, if I'm watching the AAC, it's probably because Tulane and Ron Hunter uh, is involved, and, and, and not necessarily those guys. So that, that, that's kind of a discussion that comes up, and obviously I had it on the show today. Do you trade seven? to bring in a guy like O.G. Ananobi? Do you put other pieces as a part of that deal uh, to try to bring in a veteran? 
I'm not sure if the Pacers are to the point where you're trading away the seventh pick to bring back a veteran. That'd be a pretty quick departure, kind of what the plan has been over the course of the last couple of years. But but maybe we're to that point uh, in Kevin Pritchard's estimation. Yeah, the difficult thing about conjuring up trades is that I can conjure up a great trade for the Pacers that makes sense for them. It's harder for me to conjure up a great trade that makes sense for the Pacers and somebody else. Like Toronto, I I think you and Jimmy were having this discussion, you know, the the number seven pick in Buddy Heald is a great trade package, but if I'm Toronto, why in the world would I want Buddy Heald? I'm tearing things down. Right. I mean, I think you want the seventh pick, you want another future pick. Maybe you'd be willing to take on just some of the spare parts that the Pacers have, whether it's Jalen Smith or Isaiah Jackson, whether it's, of course, Duarte, knowing you simply kind of need bodies, you know, for some of these teams like the Raptors, like the Wizards. You know, there is no team in the NBA that needs spare parts like the Phoenix Suns. They literally have nothing to give back at this point. You know, they're out of draft picks. they got like five dudes under contracts. They really can't be involved any sort of trade unless there's some sort of three-way deal that, that would benefit somebody. So, yeah, it, it's easy. And, and the immediate thought was is that everybody's little brother outside of Indianapolis had Russell Westbrook coming to the Pacers, you know, this past year because the Pacers could eat that contract. Um, but, but you know, clearly the Pacers are like, no, we're, we're good. We kind of like the pieces that we have and don't want him at this point. So you're right. When you're thinking about these trade deals that can be put together – you got to think about what makes sense for the other team as well. And while Buddy Heald, I think, would help other teams, not those who are in a rebuilding mode. We're talking with Greg Rakestraw, ISC Sports Network. It's the ride, 93.5, 107.5, the fan. Uh, let's shift over to the Colts. They wrapped up minicamp six days ago. They punted on the last day. And middle of June, I, I think sometimes we're just sort of begging for things to talk about when it comes to football. So I've, I've always felt like what happens in OTAs, we just end up overrating. Um, but sure. all, all of that said, with, with Anthony Richardson and, and kind of the ups and downs, uh, is there anything that happened that made you think any differently about Richardson than you did, let's say, on draft night? No, not at all. I mean, and, and, and all of the little things are good signs how he handles the media, the stories you're about him, you know, cleaning up, you know, after a, a pre-draft event, the way the other players in the room talk about him, some of the throws you have seen him make in practice. Um, but we're not going to learn anything really until September or October. We'll learn more about when he's going to make his debut as a starter in July and August. But everything is about at this point, hey, can, can you play? Can you figure it out? at this level. And we're not going to learn that in practices in T-shirts and shorts in April, May, or June. So, again, all, all of the signs are pointing in the right direction, but we're not going to know much. And, again, we'll learn, we'll learn a little bit more at the end of July and the end of August, but it's going to be well into this year and maybe even a year after that before we really kind of know, all right, what exactly do the Indianapolis Colts have in their number four pick? Maybe it's just me talking myself into things, and this probably, honestly, long-term isn't the best thing for them, at least in the scope of the 2023 season, Rake, but I, I just don't think that they're going to be like this bad, awful football team. I I see people say, well, they're going to go, you know, they're going to win three or four games again. I'm like, guys, they they were almost a 6-7 win team last year, and I, I think on paper they look, and that's with everything going wrong. Like last year, everything that could go wrong for the 2022 Colts I think went wrong, and I, I just feel like that's unlikely to occur again this fall. And here's what I would say is this, is that the margin is so slim between great to terrible in the National Football League. The Colts were a miserable football team last year with a 4-12-1 record. Period, end of sentence. They beat the Super Bowl champs and should have beaten the runners-up. Now, I know both of those were in Indianapolis. Those games were kind of played in different circumstances in terms of one being in week number three and the other one being in the middle of November. But for as bad as the Indianapolis Colts were, they beat the Chiefs, they should have beaten the Eagles, and they should have beaten another playoff team in terms of Minnesota Vikings. And so, and that's with, that's with pieces that, that, that weren't fitting and with a coaching situation that was questionable. So you're never that far away in the National Football League, never. I mean, there's, you, you have an occasional team that appears to be on team tank fewer than you get at, say, the NBA level or the Major League Baseball level. 
you're never that far away in the National Football League. And I get that you can play the what-if game on, on the wins as well, but bottom line, if, if they convert a 4th and 20, uh, or at least prevent the Texans from converting a 4th and 20 in Week 17, and then they hold on to a 33-point lead, then that's a 6-win football team. <laughs> you know, exactly. like that, That's kind of how close they were, I think, to at least being – and thank God they weren't. Thank God they lost both of those games. Yay. Right. Uh, that was it, the best it, thing it, for them, but but that's how close they were. Term. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I look at this roster, and I – I just I don't see bad football team. I see maybe a below average one, but I, I don't see a a bad football team. So, what is a reasonable expectation? Like, what are you looking for next year, Rick? Obviously, you're looking for growth and development, individual players like Anthony Richardson. But from a team standpoint, is there something? Is there a win total or or something that you could point to to say, okay, this season is success if, if blank happens? It's not. It's not a win total. It is, can the offensive line revert to something other than what was at the end of last year? Because that went from a strength to an albatross in an amazingly quick fashion over the span of a couple of years. And so is there anything left in that offensive line? That strikes, you know, that that catches my attention. What is Shaquille Leonard at this point? Um, You know, can he revert back to what he was you know, he was a playmaker for you in 2021, um, but maybe wasn't as consistent as he was the three years before that. What is Shaquille Leonard going to be? Um, can you develop other talent at wide receiver, not named Michael Pittman? But the obvious thing that this season's going to come down to, whether it's a success or not, will not be, you know, wins and losses. They're nice when you have them, but how good is Anthony Richardson? When you have a first-round pick at quarterback, and he he was so unique to try to qualify as a draft pick, let alone before, you know, ever taking, you know, a snap in the National Football League, yeah, that kind of blot, blots out the sun. And so what is Anthony Richardson going to be in 2023? Everything else is secondary compared to what number five looks like over the course of 17 weeks. We're talking with Greg Rakestraw of the ISC Sports Network here on The Ride on The Fan. Uh, Greg, you have done so many different sports and you're involved in so many different events. And and I know just personally speaking, you have a lot of different interests, notably tennis, one of your big interests. This is kind of the time of year in the summer where we're not just 24-7, 365 NFL, NFL, NFL all the time. What is your favorite summer sporting event? Is it soccer related? Is it Wimbledon? What is it for Greg Regstraw? Uh, it, it would be World Cup. And obviously we have a Women's World Cup that comes up. That will catch my attention a few weeks from now. Clearly, the Men's World Cup wasn't close to the summer last year with it you know, being played on like Thanksgiving and Christmas uh, and, and things like that. Um, U.S. Open, which just happened, is obviously a pretty big deal. You know, Wimbledon, I probably don't watch as much as I used to. Uh, and, and maybe I'll start watching it. This is not to, like I acknowledge, like Rafael Nadal, Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic, you could argue, are the three greatest men's tennis players to ever live. Um, but but I also got to the point where I'm like, okay, I've seen this final before. I've yeah. seen this matchup before. Uh, and so maybe maybe knowing that we're, we're down to really one of those three, Rafa's going to come back for kind of a send-off year next year. But it's Novak and everybody else, you know, at this point. That might get a little bit more of my attention. Um, so I, I would probably say World Cup would be number one. And then, obviously, anything we produce on the ISC Sports Network. So, Greater <laughs> Lafayette World Series is up there somewhere. Including Quarian Schultz, of course, which you can see Monday nights at 7.30, iscsportsnetwork.com and the ISC app. This is kind of the, the, the only real, quote-unquote, light portion of the ISC calendar I'm looking here. Um, yeah, obviously, the Indy 11 women, and you guys have the production contract with the Indianapolis Indians, but really up until, you know, IFCA and then the football all-star game, and then August when things start kicking with the Mick games and Carmel and everything else, that you guys have going on there this is kind of the only like light sort of oh my god is greg going to get a weekend off sort of break here but appreciate you coming on the show my man and i'll see you uh coming up here on monday this is my only weekend off by the way coming up uh so you so you nailed that and this is the only week in the calendar year where i do not have play-by-play wow. and so as much as i love my job I am looking forward to a weekend off coming up. Yeah, get some, like, honey tea or something. (laughs) Just just take it easy for a little bit. 
I'll, I'll, I'll just sit there and, and kind of keep the voice at a normal volume. I should be good. There you go. At Greg Regstraw on Twitter, iscsportsnetwork.com. You can download the app on mobile, Roku, Apple, Fire TV, among other platforms, and check out Greg. And they're a very, very busy sports calendar. Appreciate it as always, my man. Thanks. You don't have to say they. You don't work for us full-time anymore, but you are still part of the family. You can drop a we with that. Cool. <laughs> All right, I'll do a we. I'll keep there going you. with the we. See you, man. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Two days away from the NBA draft, it's always one of my favorite nights. In fact, Jake and I on the show, Jake Query, who does mornings with Kevin Bowen, we still do our dog and pony show, Query and Schultz, once a week. Monday night, 7.30, IC Sports Network. You can check it out on YouTube. Everyone has their own sports nerd gift, and one of my sports nerd gifts is that I have this encyclopedic knowledge of the 1996 NBA draft, which is the greatest draft ever, even better than 84, pound for pound. And I can run through essentially the entire first round of the 96 NBA draft. So for me, draft night was always a lot of fun because as a kid, I had a lot of friends, uh, of course, and I would use my parents' Packard Bell computer and create spreadsheets with all the draft picks. This is you know either pre-internet or the infancy of the internet in like 93, 94, 95, 96, and I would run them all down as the broadcast was going down. Um, I, Tony wasn't around then, at least I, I think most of his childhood was spent in the internet era, but I, I think he can connect with that because he shares, I think a fellow nerddom when it comes to the NBA, he covers the Pacers for SI.com. He's the host of the locked on Pacers podcast. And he joins us now. Any nerdy thing like that, Tony, as a kid, NBA wise that you used to do. I was alive for the 1996 draft, Derek. I'm not that young. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I, I know you're a little bit younger, but you, you probably, I mean, most of your stuff was internet, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I was in the last class of my high school that didn't have laptops. So gotcha. kind of internet. Okay. Internet, I um, yeah, I don't know if I had like a nerdy NBA. I had a lot of nerdy baseball stuff. I bought the top 10 stats book that the MLB put out every single year. Some of them, it was the same top 10 for every stat, the same every year over, but I still wanted to read it. So baseball was my nerdy thing. It's just fun. Like you can pick a sports season. I remember ESPN used to have an old show and you, you would pick your expertise like 1993, 94 Indiana Hoosiers. And then <laughs> like Dan Patrick would ask you questions. And, and I feel like everyone has like that one category where you're just like, I know everything there is to know about this. But I, I know, you know, most of what there is to know about the current 23, 24, at least about to be Indiana Pacers. Uh, as fun as it is to have five draft selections, does some of this feel like. I don't know if I want to say a waste of time, but we know there's a 0% chance that the Pacers actually use all five of these selections, right? Yeah, I mean, they've, they've said that, right? They've made that clear, and usually that's like you keep your cards close to the vest if you can kind of thing, but it's just so obvious that they can't make five picks that they'll tell anyone who, who's around, right? And they, I think Kevin Pritchard said it at three different junctures now, uh, Miles Turner's extension at the end of his season presser and then again at the lottery because – it's not even that having five picks is, like, bad for a team trying to be good. It's that they can't fit five new players on their team, right? They don't even have mm-hmm. five free agents in the mix. They'd have to trade away stuff just to free up the roster spots to actually make five picks. So not only do they want to be making steps forward next year, and it's hard to do that when you're playing rookie significant minutes, but they just can't even fit five first-year players into the infrastructure they already have. So it's very obvious they'll be moving some stuff around in some way. The question is how and what do they get back and how do they prioritize those returns? What are the chances, just gleaning from either what you've heard or just kind of adding everything up, that they, they end up moving off of specifically the number seven pick? Yeah, you know, the the reasons you do it is kind of what we just said, that, that they need to consolidate in some way, right? If they can trade their four picks that aren't seven as well as seven and get to six or five to get their guy, maybe you do that. Um, if you can go to nine and also get 16 and then you trade all the rest of your picks for some good vet that fits your team, maybe you do that. You know, I don't know what the best path forward is. And that was kind of a theme we heard yesterday when we were talking to their vice president of player personnel, Ryan Carr, because he kept using two words. He said options and opportunity. They'll have a lot of those in the draft because they have five picks and because it's going to potentially be a bigger movement than normal year with the new CBA coming in and a pretty strong top 10. So there's a lot of things they could do. I think picking at seven will 
see my most likely guess, but you know, there's a lot of ways they could do it just given the numbers crunch they're going to be facing. We're joined by Tony East. He's the host of the Locked On Pacers podcast. You can also follow his work, SI.com, talking everything blue and gold. Um, if they do make a trade, who would be some of the veteran wing players who, who really interest you? Who, who screams potential fit to you? Of Look, I, I know I'm asking you to like conjure up a trade out of thin air, but just, just looking around at the guys that have been rumored or that have been talking about, um, who, who kind of entices you the most? Yeah, you know, because I, like most people in Indiana, haven't been living under a rock since February, I feel like I have to say OG and Anobi first. I mean, <laughs> I think that the, the Pacerdom has been talking about that name for <laughs> four or five months now, and some of it's that the Raptors were, you know, loosely gauging his value. Some of it's that no one knows what the Raptors are going to do. Some of it's that he went to IU, and most of it is that he's really good and would fit the Pacers really well, right? I think that's where a lot of this discussion comes from is – you know, Rick Carlisle at his end-of-season press conference was talking about, yeah, we need fours, and every team wants a four who can create a little bit. And the whole Pacers team said, we need to defend better. They were the worst defensive team in the league from the All-Star break to the end of the season. You put all that together, and a player like Goji Ananobi is kind of exactly what they need and would connect a lot of the pieces uh, that they already have and would really make them more formidable in many ways, would not subtract from anything they already have, right? You're going to hear a lot of names uh, but I think he'll be the one that obviously I always start with when I ask and ask that question. Um, but he's not going to be the only one. It's always tricky because wings are so valuable that teams rarely make them available. I think Jake Fisher at Yahoo reported Pacers had some interest in DeAndre Hunter with the Hawks back in February. Perhaps he could be one that they circle back to now. The Hawks are going to be dealing with some financial stress because of the new CBA pretty soon. People have a lot of questions about what the Pelicans are going to do, perhaps some of their forwards, but uh, it's going to be fascinating to see because, you know, in a year like this where the, there's changes to the rules eight days after the draft, I think that's going to influence what a lot of teams have to do. Can you give me the Tony East power rankings, if the Pacers do stay at seven, on the four names that really have been linked to them, I think, the most here in, in Walker, Hendricks, uh, Cam Whitmore, and Grady Dick? Like, rank those guys one through four to me just for, for fit, just kind of your personal power rankings on those guys. Yeah, Walker and Hendricks are my one-two in in some order. Walker's been my one the whole time. A lot of people think Hendricks would be a better player, a better fit. I understand why. He's a much better shooter, but Jairus Walker can really defend. He can defend several positions. He can really move around the floor, switch. He's powerful. Like He's just kind of a lot of the stuff the Pacers need, and he's got a little bit of offensive upside. Like If you watch his high school tape at IMG, he's – handling the ball, creating a little bit, making plays in a way that you never see that with Hendricks, but both can defend. And I think that's why of the natural fits at seven for the Pacers, those two stand out the most to me. They need defense so bad. And a lot of times you don't want to look at fit in the draft, right? You just want to get the best player. But in the Pacers situation where they have two really good guards who they project to have for a very long time, you can actually think about fit a little bit. And so looking at those defensive forwards who plug in well with Halliburton, with Matherin, makes a lot of sense. I I think that Grady Dick might fit better with the Pacers than Cam Whitmore does, but I think Cam Whitmore will be a better pro. So those two, it kind of comes down to your philosophy. I would put Whitmore three and, and Grady Dick four. Um, Whitmore just has this unique combination of athleticism and power. Grady Dick, obviously the best shooter in the draft. So I, none of them are bad players. I think they'll all be fine in the pros, but that's the order I'll put them in. I think there's this feeling from fans, and, and maybe it's because fans here aren't used to having top 10 picks. They they, they had their first single-digit selection last year with Matherin in since, what, 89 or however long it had been. Uh, but there's this feeling that like anybody that you get with a top 10 pick has to be some like franchise-level player, have that upside. A- am I right in saying I'd happily set it? Like, let's say it's, it's Jairus Walker. I, I, if he can switch and guard multiple positions and – be a, a rock solid NBA starter for them for seven, eight years and have like a 10, 12 year career. Like I, I'm perfectly cool with that. Is my bar too low? Your bar's right. Before we talk about that question, we did this last year, Derek, where we talked about Pacers top 10 picks since the eighties. And I, I think we all talked about it wrong. We were all saying single digit pick. You should know 1996 draft. They picked Eric Dampier 10th. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. That's a top 10. That's yeah. a top 10 pick, right? Shouldn't that count? And, and Paul George, right, was 10, exactly, <laughs> exactly 10. So 10. you had to specifically say single digit, but <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> we all did it. We all you're did right. it for years and years. Yeah, I think you're totally right on that. Like, 
the way I think about it is like a guy like Kyle Korver, right? Who's just like mm-hmm. the ultimate role player for years and years and years. And he was awesome. He had a 20 year career and was a one time all star and a lights out shooter. He was the fifth overall pick. If you get Kyle Korver at five, you're like, yes, <laughs> you know, let's go. We got a guy who's going to help us and be really good for years and years. Like Thaddeus Young, if you get him at somewhere in the top 10, you're stoked, right? You get a really good player for eight to 10 years. Obviously, in the top 10, you think more about upside and think about the franchise player, but I'm with you that if you get a guy who fits your team and is going to have a long career and be a really good player, you're happy with that as any NBA franchise. Let's take Wemby out, generational prospect, right? Uh, how do you regard this draft class past him? Because it, it felt like there was a top tier last year as well, but the guys in that next group like Ivy and Matherin and even Keegan Murray, you, you could say, okay, they have potential to be all-star players. And I'm looking here beyond the top three and just reading what everybody's saying and, and kind of adding it all up. And it, it doesn't feel like uh, people regard that group the same. Like everyone, you know, once you kind of get past Scoot and, and Brandon Miller, you get to like the four to nine range. I, I think there are players that people like to differing degrees, but I don't know if any of them are viewed as like future all NBA caliber players. Is that right? Yeah, Scoot and, and Miller could obviously be in that group, like you said. Four to nine's fascinating because it's it's guys that I think are either have that potential of all NBA, or if they don't hit it, there's a lot of questions about what their impact will be. Right, like mm-hmm. both Thompson twins, their upside is enormous. But if they don't quite hit the creation, or they can't play defense as well as it looks like they might, because everybody kind of looks at overtime elite and just shrugs and says, I don't really get it. Um, then who knows what they could be if they don't pan out to that highest degree, they might not be the best pros, but they could be amazing. Right. Amen Thompson's creation upside looks fantastic. And then you Walker and Hendricks who don't have as much upside as those guys are Whitmore, but are look like they could be fantastic role players. So while I agree with you that there is less of the, that tier you just described that, Murray Mather and Ivy types who look like they could just be like really solid to all-star level for years. There are a lot of guys with really high ceilings, but also their 50th percentile outcome is a little scary in terms of the normal pick. And that's kind of why I'm a little lower on this draft than the consensus, but I'm just a guy who's been watching college basketball for two months. So don't listen to me on that. (laughs) Talking about some of the other questions that the Pacers have to answer beyond draft night. uh, They've got a handful of in-house free agents doesn't appear that any of those guys are must retain guys, but what would you say the over under is on just given their roster spot situation here, Tony? And I think we'll have some more clarity on this after after Thursday, given if there are some trades made. But what do you think the over under is on on how many of those guys actually return to the fold here? Yeah, if you count Kendall Brown and Gabe York, they're two way guys. They've got five free agents, and I would say two is the number that I would expect to be back. Although I could make an argument for three. Like, do they need two amazing vets? James Johnson and George Hill were awesome for what the Pacers needed last year. Amazing locker room guys. I've joked with Dustin O'Parrick at the Indy Star before that if we could start a business where we just pay James Johnson to send us nice messages every morning, we would do it because he'd be amazing at it. But does the Pacers need to use two roster spots on those guys? No, maybe just one of them. O'Shea Brissett is good and is tight with this culture. Is he somebody they need to bring back, especially if they draft or sign a better forward? Maybe not. And they don't have anybody you have to rush to prioritize this summer. They could rather use their space somewhere else and circle back. Kevin Pritchard called their free agency class like July 10th, guys, which I was kind of surprised he said that. But he is right in terms of when you'd circle back to those guys. So maybe if they strike out on some fours, they bring Brissett back. But to me, it seems like they'll try to keep Kendall Brown, who they liked in the draft last year maybe on another two-way deal, and then one of George Hill and James Johnson kind of fills the vet role. But there's good sense in all of them. In theory, they fit well. They know this team well. They, they play positions of need. It's just the team is clearly looking for upgrades. It doesn't have a lot of wiggle room with roster spots to do it. If you go back to the end of the bubble season, we were kind of coming off the the, the Spurs dynasty, a Warriors dynasty, four LeBron titles with multiple teams over the past decade, and, and it, it felt sort of hopeless. I, I may be reading too much into this because Denver has Jokic and Milwaukee has Giannis, so it still requires having basically the best player in basketball to break through and win a title, but do you think at all, Tony, the way that things have gone here the past three years where you've got two afterthought franchises in the Bucks and Nuggets, you know, the Bucks ending their long drought and the Nuggets winning for the first time, d- does that provide any more hope at all that maybe a championship is feasible, at least a glimmer for Pacers fans? 
Yeah, Adam Silver, that sound you heard is him doing a backflip somewhere off in the distance that we're even <laughs> having this conversation, right? And this is kind of what the NBA wants. Parity is extremely important to them. They want the league to be as competitive as possible so every team feels like they have a chance and every fan base can be engaged. They've had five different champions in five years now, right? Bucks, Raptors, Warriors, Nuggets, and I'm for some reason forgetting the fifth team, but like that is very unique in the NBA. There's been dynasties for years and years in this league, so the fact that this is happening is good for the league, and you can tell by the way they're changing this collective bargaining agreement that the league wants it to be this way. They want it to be possible for teams to ascend and not have the dominant league. Like since 2010, when LeBron joined, or 2009, when LeBron joined the Heat, it felt like for 12-ish years, it felt like there were only two or three teams every season that had a chance. Yeah. And that's not the case anymore. So if you're a Pacers team and you go, look, if we get a guy and we build the team the way that it seems like it's very plausible for anybody now, yeah, we could be in the mix to, to be a winner or be a threat any given year. And I tweeted this a couple of days ago, but, you know, outside of the Wizards, who just traded Bradley Beal, it's possible 14 out of the 15 East teams want to make the playoffs next year. Like, that's unheard of, at least since I've been covering the NBA. And that could happen in the West, too. Like, it's a great time for the league in that, there's a lot of talent. There's a lot of young talent. A lot of teams think they can be good. And the rules have made the playing field so level that this is possible for any team, including the Pacers, who have to see, like what you said, the Bucks and Nuggets success and go, okay, we can do that. We've just got to make the right moves along the way. I'm just glad it's quieted the NBA's rig stuff. You know what I mean? Because they would never rig it for the Milwaukee Bucks, right? Well, if they did, they surely wouldn't rig it for the Nuggets two years later. Right? <laughs> kind of recoup those numbers somehow. <laughs> well, last thing here, Tony, I, I appreciate your Fever content as well, and and they're off to a an encouraging start. I, I know. Record-wise, that, that's not, I, I think, how you can judge them. This is going to be a, a long slog for them to kind of climb out of the WNBA basement. But all things considered through 11 games, especially what we've seen with some of these individual performances from Aaliyah Boston, are, are you pretty pleased with the, the fever here in year one trying to pick themselves up? Yeah, it's hard to explain to people sometimes that 4-7 and seven is like an unbelievably great start for them. But, I mean, they went 5-31 and 31 last year. They lost their last 18 games. Like, to see them be – not only four and seven, but in many of those losses, competitive and right there, which there's no moral victories, but they look way better than they have any year I've covered them. They've got the right pieces in place from the front office perspective, coaching perspective, and they also have one of the best 15 players in the league now in Aaliyah Boston, who they just drafted first overall and has played a whole 11 games in the pros, but you can tell they're headed in the right direction. I know you wrote about her too, but Boston is just unbelievable. I mean, her footwork's ridiculous. Her defense is exactly what they needed. And they just brought everything together. Like they kind of struggled on both ends of the floor last year, this year, they've had a more than capable offense every night and they have flashes of defensive brilliance. Like they almost beat the champs because they held them to 13 points in a quarter. Like they just look way better. And even though they might not be quite playoff level this year, it's very obvious that they'll be on that path for quite a few years in a row after this year and that's so encouraging given where they've been before this yeah i think boston's special and god knows they, they need a special oh, yeah. player over there at yeah. tony r east on twitter locked on pacers pod on all major podcast platforms search for his work si forbes thr everywhere else appreciate it my man busy week for you i thanks so much for fitting us in on the show here of course derek always love chatting take care Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Our next guest had a extended Father's Day weekend as well. I guess the, the weekend continues to extend. I'm, I'm trying to do a glass half full thing here because a lot of people made this lame joke with me when when I got let go as well. He's Bob Kravitz, a longtime sports columnist here in town. Honestly, Bob, if I were you, I would have just gone to like the Jersey Shore for the next month. So I, I appreciate you doing this call at all. Oh, not a problem, man. I, I actually <laughs> went to uh, Saugatuck, Michigan this past weekend. Nice. And we're doing the Jersey Shore in uh, July. Nice. It's been many, many years since I've been down the shore, but it's uh, it's a great time. Uh, I know you've been through this before, and uh, people know that it's not a reflection on your great work. It's just some person in some office somewhere crossing off numbers on a sheet or deciding to pivot and do a new thing, whatever the athletics decided to do. Um, that said, does it, does it still kind of sadden you that this is just life in sports media that we've all kind of accepted that just one day you're going to get some random phone call that, hey, guess what? We're going in another direction. 
Yeah, it, it, it's hard. It's hard to you know tell young journalists that uh, this is something they ought to pursue <laughs> because because it, it's just a crazy time. You know, I was lucky. I came of age really in the '80s and the '90s when newspapers were were all the rage. I mean, you know, if you were a columnist in a two newspaper town, you were always um, you know, you, you had lots of leverage, and it was great. But uh, things have changed, and, and with the with the athletics since the New York Times took over, basically they're not as interested in local coverage, mm-hmm. especially in small markets, as they were when they started. Remember when they started, they were going to out newspaper the newspaper, and you know we had we had Scott Agnes, we had Dustin Dupirac, we had Zach, we had Holder, we had me. You know, we had a pretty good staff, and now we're down to, you know, James Boyd, who's wonderful and is going to do a great job on the Colts. But, you know, to me, not having uh, a college basketball writer in Indiana is like not having a hockey writer in Toronto. Um, So they're going in a different direction. They're going to be more – nationally oriented more big stories more big markets um and uh unfortunately i mean fortunately i live in indianapolis unfortunately uh we're uh we're not the kind of big market that the athletic really wants to reach out to have you taken any time in the past couple of days to start considering what could be next or is this still kind of grab your bearings and then approach that coming up here in the near future yeah, a little both. You know, mm-hmm. I, I've mostly I've played golf and went went on a quick vacation with my wife to to Michigan, and um, you know I'm going to start really tomorrow uh, getting a better idea of what's out there. I got a couple of phone calls lined up, and um, you know, uh, <laughs> retiring is not completely out of the realm of possibility. Uh, if I can't do that, then I'll find something. Um, I don't know what it is exactly, but, uh, you know, I've been really lucky in my career. Something always seems to come along. Um, you know, when Channel 13 let me go, uh, the athletic was pretty much waiting on my doorstep um, to, to pick me up. So, you know, we'll, we'll see where it goes from here. Yeah, and I think you navigated it well. I think you got out of, uh, you know, and I still have a lot of friends at the Star, and I think highly of them, but I think given where the newspaper stuff has gone the last 10 years, I think you got out at the right time then, and then, you know, going over to THR was the right move, even if it ended kind of like this did with the Athletic, but the Athletic yeah. was a great move too, and, and you, you did a lot of great work during that time, and, and I don't want to talk about your career like it's over, like, so uh, yeah. remember when, you who know, knows, you, you know yeah, we, we don't know, like, it, it's still kind of ongoing, but what I've always appreciated about you Bob was that people don't realize this now like if you're 20 25 years old you probably don't realize this now but back in the day we didn't really have like take culture like it it, it felt like a lot of sports coverage was kind of just safe and it was information and it wasn't a lot of opinion based and I always appreciated you because you were never afraid to say exactly what you thought, especially in a market like this, because coming from, you know, where you came from and coming from where I came from, you know, I, I remember growing up reading the New York Daily News and Mike Lupica was a freaking flamethrower. Like he'd, he'd oh light stuff God. on fire all the time. And, you, you know, you come out here and it's much calmer and, and you were kind of the person that stood above everyone else because I didn't always agree with what you said, but I knew that you were going to give me something that made, made me think, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's nice of you to say. I mean, you know, I like you, I grew up on the East Coast. Um, you know, we did a couple of years in Chicago when I was in high school, but still, you know, big markets, uh, pro markets, um, and, you know, having a take and, and, and being, being opinionated is what you expected. I mean, you talk about Lupica. I'm old enough to remember Dick Young, um, mm-hmm. you know, on the city side, Jimmy Breslin, those are the guys that I grew up reading. Uh, Mike Royko um, in in Chicago. Uh, I like I like columnists, male or female, who uh, have a have a take. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I I don't like the hot takes, but you know, I, I think a column should leave a mark, and I, I hope that I've done that uh, more often than not uh, over the last couple of years. 
We're talking with longtime sports columnist here in this town and, and elsewhere, Bob Kravitz, here on the ride with JMV 93.5-1075 The Fan. I'm sure a lot of people have asked you what you're most proud of during your sports writing career, but I, I was always kind of curious. What's something that you wrote that you regret? And I'm not talking about a prediction. I, I just mean something that you look back and you said, you know what, knowing what I know now, that probably wasn't fair of me to say that at the time. You know, I, it's funny. I, I, I kind of, I kind of write the column and then I move on to the next one. So I don't spend a gotcha. lot of time thinking about it, but I thought just talking about stupid columns uh, in 1990, maybe it was five or something. I wrote that it was time for the Colts, for the Colts, for the Broncos to move on from John Elway. <laughs> How'd that work out yeah. for you, Bob? <laughs> they, they, they won, they won the, uh, won the Super Bowl in 98, 99. Uh, John's last two years. So. And I'm sure no one in Denver remembers that you wrote that, right, Bob? No, <laughs> no. No, I mean, there have been – I mean, I'm, I'm sorry I don't have any specifics, and that's not to say that there aren't plenty of columns that I've written where I've thought – later on I've thought, geez, what what in the hell were you thinking, man? <laughs> but but nothing comes immediate, immediate, immediately to mind, I should say. The, the cool thing about – having the connection that you did with sports figures in this town is that you got to know people uh, more intimately than, than the common fan. And, and that reflected in your writing, kind of letting people in behind the curtain a little bit, but obviously there are some private conversations that you had that remained private, that the, there was a trust level that you built with people like Jim Ursay and with Peyton Manning, uh, with Rick Carlisle, you know, p- people like that. Right. Is there someone that you came across in your 20 plus years here that, that you felt like the narrative about them just wasn't right at all that, that people had fans misunderstood who they really were? You know, this is going to sound totally crazy. You remember David Harrison? Yeah, sure. I do. Yeah. Pacer center. Right. I, I thought, and I mean, David, David did a lot of things that weren't real brilliant. Um, you know, he had some issues. But I always thought he was just such an incredibly intelligent guy who had so much on the ball. Um, he just, you know, I, I just, he's just a guy I've always enjoyed talking to. Uh, I thought that he was, and, and I'm sure I had something to do with it, but I, I thought that he got a tough rap. Um, you know, I, I honestly, you know, uh, I, I'm not a big fan of, of – um, Carson Wentz, but I thought that he got something of a bad rap in this town. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think he's the, he's evil incarnate, uh, you know, <laughs> as, 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 as we're seeing now, he, he probably was a better choice than, uh, than uh, Matt Ryan. So, you know, I, I, there's, there's been a number of people, um, you know, I, I've, I've gotten to know, you know, it's, it's not like we sit around and, you know, uh, shoot the crap and, and, and drink a couple of beers. And, you know, I haven't done that with too many athletes, but, um, enough to, enough to get to know some guys. And I always thought that David was a really sharp dude and I really liked him. I think you could actually lump a lot of paces in there. Like I think about, not that I knew that we were best friends or anything, but Steven Jackson had far more depth and intelligence than I think people realized at the time. Absolutely. Good, good choice. Yeah. I wish I'd come up with that. Uh, I've talked with uh, Steven for some stories that I've done uh, over the last couple of years. And I always enjoy talking to him. Um, Super smart. You know, I mean, I disagree with some of his takes on things like his take on the John Morant deal i think is idiotic but i I still really like him a lot having this job that you've had it's it's so glamorous on the outside looking in where people are like wow you're doing something that i've always dreamed of doing so i don't think this computes for people that weren't in the business but part of you bob the last couple of days is it is it nice to not have to worry what am i going to write about next oh it's it's so liberating (laughs) you know now that that's not going to last much longer there's only so much golf a human being can play. <laughs> sure. But um, I was watching something the other night. I don't, I don't remember if it was NBA or what, what it was. But I was watching something. I thought, I don't have to have a take on this. <laughs> and it seemed really just liberating, you know, um, like, you know, the, the, uh, the, the Pacers in the draft. 
uh, on Thursday. Um, like, I don't have to go. I don't, I don't have to have a take on, you know, whether I think Jarese Walker is a good pick or, or Hendricks or whoever it might be. So yes, it's been, it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, but that's not going to last much longer. At some point, I got to get off my sorry behind and do something. Yeah, it's funny because I love sports, but like the the Lakers Warriors series, those games are starting at ten, and I have a day job, and and I'm tired, and I'm like, I'm not gonna, you know, I, I start to lay down on the couch with a blanket and everything, and I'm like. I'm going to bed. Like, what am I doing? I don't need to watch this game. I don't have to drop everything that I'm doing to watch this. I'd rather just kind of get to sleep and catch up on Twitter the next day. Right. right, Exactly. I mean, I remember when I did the radio show on, on, on that station uh, many years ago, me and Eddie, and, you know, it, it was hard because you had to watch everything. You had to, you know, you had to be ready to, uh, answer questions about virtually everything that happened in sports the previous day and night. And that got old real fast, I got to tell you. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm no renaissance man, but I have interests outside of sports. One thing, Bob, that I think about, you know, being a columnist compared to, let's say, being a, a radio host where – there's I don't know if I want to say more responsibility there's responsibility no matter what because you have to attach yourself to something that you're saying but there was there's this like permanency about writing that you don't get in radio like if I say something right now at 5 15 on June 20th yeah you can go to the podcast page but you got to dig it out you know what I mean I say and it kind of sits there and then it floats away there are probably people that still send you columns from something you said about Trent Richardson you know what I mean because it's there I can still I can look that up and find the link yeah, absolutely right. There, there is a a real permanence uh, about writing, and um, uh, yeah, I've gotten. I mean, you know, stuff stuff that I've written. Uh, people send me stuff. I, I wrote a, um, a a friend of mine passed away, and back in Denver, and I wrote uh, about him. I wrote a column about him and his beloved Red Sox, and. Uh, I still get people still send me that, and it, it's amazing to me uh, that it does have that sort of permanence. Not that my my writing is all that marvelous, but uh, certain subjects seem to uh, seem seem to last, have a staying power. Speaking of uh, Richardson and the Colts, if I would have told you at the time, and this was a big moment for, I mean, this was a big national story that you broke, Deflategate. If I would have told you then, that would be the high water mark for the Colts in the post Peyton era ten years later. Would you have ever believed me? No, no. I, I mean, I would have thought with with Andrew and you know doing what they did the first three years, um, that team was ready to go places. Now, you know, they probably would have run into into New England a couple more times the way the Peyton Colts did. But, um, yeah, I would have thought, you know, I mean, still, to me, the biggest surprise I've ever had was, was uh, the day that we were sitting there at the uh, Colts and the Bears. And it was a preseason game. And I was supposed to talk to Chuck Pagano afterwards about the snow game, of all things, in Buffalo for a story out that we were working on. And... I remember in the fourth quarter, um, uh, we see the tech, uh, the uh, the tweet from Adam Schefter saying that uh, Andrew Luck is retired, and I just thought, you have got to be kidding me. I mean, I thought that he would leave a little early, but not that early, you know, because he has so many other interests. I'm looking for the blue check. I'm like frantically refreshing the screen. I I. I picked up my phone and I checked my phone on Twitter to make sure that it was the, is this right. the Adam Schefter? This isn't like that. Remember that dude had that Adarn Schefter? Adarn yeah. Schefter. He got me once. That, that bastard got me once. He got me on a, uh, a trade or the, I don't know if it was a trade, but it involved Dwight Freeney and uh, Adarn Schefter got me. That, so, he got all of us at some point, you know, people. He did, he did. It, but yeah, we, I showed it to uh, to to uh, Zach Kiefer and Stephen Holder, and we're just double checking to make sure the the blue check mark is there and that it's Adam Sheff the right Adam Schefter, and we're like, holy crap, this is going <laughs> to be a long night. 
Good news for the Colts, and you, you tell me if you agree with this, Bob. The, the one thing that always kind of gives me hope, and I know they've been caught in this, as we've mentioned, this purgatory here, like the last nine or ten years kind of stuck in the middle, is that I, I think Jim Irsay, for some of his flaws, and he's a he's a flawed man, I think he would admit that too, his number one thing is he wants to win. And in sports today, especially when you talk about like Major League Baseball, that's not always the case with ownership. No. And that's what always kind of renews my faith in the Colts every year. Like, I keep thinking that they're going to get back because Ursa is going to do everything that he can to win again. Well, as long as he doesn't pull off, pull the kind of nonsense he did last year. <laughs> that's right. I mean, last yeah. year he was completely out of, out of line, uh, getting involved and, and, and trying, to, trying to, you know, uh, I mean, mandating that Ellinger plays. And it, it was just, it was a disaster. But yes, by and large, Jim Mersey is one of the best owners in in professional sports. You know where his heart is. Um, you know, even if you go back to the day when uh, there were there were questions about the um, uh, about the stadium, he never he, he wanted to stay where he was. He had no burning desire to build a new arena or build a new stadium. So, I mean, I think Jim's heart's in the right place. Sometimes his brain gets in the way. But by and large, I think Indy is very fortunate that we, that we have Jim and, 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 the, and Herb Simon. Uh, you know, Herb won't spend the money that, that Jim does, but, you know, um, still, it's still important to have, you know, those kinds of, those kinds of owners in town. Last thing here, Bob, it sounds like from what I've heard from you is that you're, you're not going anywhere as far as you're st- going to stay in Indianapolis. Oh, yeah. And I, I think you know this, too, not being from here. The, the first thing that I learned living in Indianapolis was how important it was to people in Indianapolis that people not from Indianapolis really love Indianapolis. And I, I know that you've kind of you know part of your writing has been kind of this snark. Right. Which which I, I love. And I know not everybody loves that, but that's kind of, I think, what made you great ab- about being negative when you felt like it was it was time to be negative and, and holding people accountable, but also kind of using that snark and all of that. And in, in some of your writing uh, that said. Uh, Indianapolis is a special place to you. Uh, I, I know that I, I know of that from your words and all that. Um, what does it mean that you had so many great stops in your career, Denver, Chicago, Sports Illustrated, everything in the national platform that you were able to do these 23 plus years. If it is indeed just 23 years uh, in Indianapolis, what's that mean? Well, I mean, it's home. It's home. And, you know, we've, we've got great friends here. My, uh, my older daughter and uh, her husband live here. Unfortunately, my younger one and her husband live out in Seattle, which is uh, annoying, but uh, no, it, it, I, I love this place. You know, do I wish we had a National Hockey League franchise? Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I would love that. And I'd probably be doing a sub stack just on the hockey team. But, no, it, it's been a great town. And um, uh, we, we, we are so – we feel so fortunate. My wife and I were talking about this this weekend that we got to raise our kids in Indiana. Um, you know, politically – uh, it doesn't line up with the way I look at the world necessarily, but the people are so kind and I, I just, you know, I, 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 there's no place I'd rather be honestly at this point in my life. Well, I appreciate you, Bob, for coming on the show here. And, uh, you know, I've always considered you a friend, but I'm, I'm a fan, uh, more than anything else. I think I told you that, uh, via text, always been a fan yeah. of your work and your honesty Thank and your you, talent Gary. and whatever happens from here, you know, whether it's going to Jersey shore for the next 10 years, uh, that that'd be fine too. Uh, but I, yeah. I, I hope that we hear uh, from you again in, in the sports media space. That's for sure. I hope so too. I hope so too. Thanks for having me on, man. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Kind of wish our next guest would return, but I get it. His career's on fire. He's still rising. Like me, I'm just a, I'm sitting here a has-been. I'm a fill-in. 
unlike our next guest, he also looks much better than I do in suits. He is a sports anchor for NBC5, WLWT in Cincinnati. He's our good buddy, Charlie Clifford. What's up, man? We miss you here in Indy. Schultze, I miss you. I was waiting to see. It's never a dull intro with Derek Schultz at the <laughs> controls of the rocket ship. And how dare you say that rocket ship has run out of jet fuel? You're you're just leaving the stratosphere here. Congrats on all the success with Purdue, man. Yeah, man, it, it's been fun. It's it's obviously a different realm, but uh, but it's been fun, and it is nice to come back and do this every once in a while. Hop on the bike and, and make sure that you can still ride. Um, I don't know if you're a good luck charm or what, but man, you get to Cincinnati and. <laughs> Suddenly, you know, the Bengals were already on fire, but the, the Reds are playing like the Johnny Cueto, uh, Brandon Phillips days. What's gotten into them? You know, I think they're 31 and 20 since my first day here at NBC and Cincy. And we just wrapped up Made a great timing here. Talked to general manager, Nick Crawl, who made it very clear. The Reds very open to being buyers at the trade deadline later next month. There is no hiding from the fact that the team has surprised everyone, even in its own city. But that's not going to stop management, which this is a big eye-opener for many Reds fans, from potentially spending some money here. Really, the starting pitching is where that starts. Uh, That would be the number one priority by a country mile at the moment. This, This lineup continues to hit on a nightly basis. Lefties, righties, they're electric on the bases. But it looks like for the first time, remember, since he hasn't won the NL Central since 2012, it looks like they're going to go all in in terms of trying to get this team back to the postseason this year. Yeah, and I'd be lying if I said that I was kind of following all of the happenings in Dayton and Chattanooga and Louisville and, and, and their farm <laughs> system. I, I do know that Ellie De La Cruz uh, – was in the futures game. I I, I remember seeing yeah. that, but then I hadn't thought about him for a while, and now he bursts on the scene, and, and he's like a household name. Um, what kind of dude is he? Because as a player, man, he's electrifying. He's so fun, Schultz. He does not appear to be stressed. You know, even his first day up, Olivia Ray, who I know many of you missed in India as well, went down, did a feature with him in Louisville about 10 days before he ultimately got called up. Uh, he is as calm of a young baseball player as you'll meet. And he's, he's looked apart. You know, he's, he's had some struggles in terms of, you know, hitting for average, I guess, in the early going. But if he puts the ball on the ground, it is probably the most interesting, electrifying three to four seconds in baseball right now, watching him slide on to first base. And, of course, everyone, you know, he is, he is the future. It, it is around him, but – Putting Votto back in the mix last night, you know, really gives this team that veteran voice because they aren't going to, you know, this isn't going to be a an eight-game win streak, uh, nine-game win streak, ten straight. You know, there are going to be bumps in the road. So getting Votto back and, and healthy, I think, is, is going to be key for the, this summer. I know you, uh, even before you entered the market, you obviously had a familiarity with Cincinnati because of your wife's ties there and being from there and spending yeah. a lot of time there. So I, I feel like I can ask you this question without kind of putting you on the spot. <laughs> I, I always sort of viewed, as now that the Bengals have come back and they're a competent, and in fact, they're a contending franchise now, I always kind of viewed Cincinnati as being a, a good complementary town. There aren't a lot of towns left where you would say the baseball team gets as much love as the football team. But am right. I right in saying it, it's right. it's not really a football town or a baseball town it's just kind of a it's a both teams town is it not i think it that's the way it had been in the last two years you know that dynamic shift was taking place so really Mm -hmm. i think if you were on the inside on the reds you had to feel like your backs were starting to get a little against the wall i mean there wasn't a ton of buzz this offseason they lose 100 last year vado's going to the last year of his deal you know, you look at the division and you thought St. Louis was clearing away going to be the team. But, yeah, to your point, this, I mean, you, you just got to look up at the stadium to know how long this franchise has been here. You know, the longest tenured franchise anywhere in baseball and in the 70s are still on the minds of everybody. And, and now you have a homegrown young team. You know, none of these players were traded for. No one was signed for big dollars. These are guys that international scouts found, college scouts found, pro scouts found through trades. I mean, it's it's a Ted Lasso-ish deal. And, um, 
you know, it's it's going to make for a really fun summer out here. We're talking with Charlie Clifford, sports anchor for NBC5 in Cincinnati. Reds in first place. And the Bengals always expecting Super Bowls now with the, this Joe Burrow <laughs> era. And, and that's what's so weird for me, Charlie. I know you're a little bit younger than me, but – as a kid, essentially a kid of the 90s, I guess I do remember the 80s as well, but when the, when the Bengals were a punchline, I'm still kind of adjusting to the fact that not only do we have you know Milwaukee Bucks and Denver Nuggets coming off recent NBA right. championships, we're, we're talking about the Cincinnati <laughs> Bengals being like a Super Bowl contender every year. It's crazy. I'm with you. I'm trying to figure it out, uh, too, with, like, is the talent just so good now across all the leagues? I certainly think that's the case in the NBA, like, these super teams just you aren't going to be able to put them in together anymore. No. You know, it takes more than three good players to to win something. Uh, the talent's just too good, and and you're right. I mean, the, the the whole Bengals deal. It's still you know, it's still fever pitch out here. I mean, I I wasn't around. You were when Peyton and Marvin and Edge and Reggie got the band together and were able to keep it together through the salary cap, but just with how much offensive firepower there is, it really feels like a similar story for a franchise that was just looking for, you know, some bit of positive momentum and to have things fall into place the way they did through, again, the draft. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it, it's just, you can't go anywhere without seeing people with dangles here. And that's, you know, it's, it's really lifted the Reds and it's lifted the major league soccer program the team here yeah. too, you know, another first place team. So, you know, things are cooking. There's not much to complain about here if you're a fan, as you can tell. Six weeks from now, we'll be training camp, so we're kind of entering what would be the right. quote-unquote dead portion of the season for NFL teams. But if I were to ask you the biggest question mark for the Cincinnati Bengals entering 2023, what is it? Hmm, that's, that's good. Um, secondary, specifically the safety spot. You know, again, it's like if you don't follow this team, if you're watching them every week, you know, maybe these names aren't household names, but they lost Von Bell and Jesse Bates. They're two starting safeties, and they're going to go a little younger back there. So I think any time when you're asking the question that every team is in the AFC, how do we get past Pat, Josh, Lamar, you know, um, Aaron Rodgers, you know, you, the back half of your secondary, I don't is any team really comfortable knowing, you know, those names? And ultimately you're going to have to knock off multiple to get to the Super Bowl in Vegas. So, yeah, I, th- I think it starts in the secondary. Uh, they, you know, they brought in Orlando Brown Jr. to play left tackle. Big money, you know, stolen from the Chiefs. That was a huge story here. So I think the offensive line woes that have really been the one constant throughout Burroughs' time you know, the expectation is that's going to be solidified and they've, they've paid a premium for it. Um, you know, I know Chris Ballard was trying to do the same thing organically and, um, you know, I hope for his sake and the Colts sake that now the, the quarterback part of the equation's figured out for a few years. How's he looked? What's the word? Yeah, up and down, but what you would expect, you know. Also, yeah. it's it's June twentieth, so I'm just I'm not ready to have yeah. a take yet. No. You know, <laughs> that's refreshing. Honestly, it's like this is you know I'm sure they're doing the same thing they had been the last six years when I was out there. I mean, I don't know how you come up with an evaluation with what they're being asked to do in June. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, I mean, life in the AFC is pretty tough when you have the first, second, third, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh uh, best quarterback <laughs> all in your conference, you know what I mean? <laughs> so it, it's not easy. <laughs> oh, wow, yeah. Well, you're slighting Jalen Hurts here. The Philadelphians of, of Indianapolis are – no, you're right, though. There's it's, it's crazy how stacked that side of the bracket is. And, you know, but just when you assume, oh, it's going to be – going to be AFC or bust you know something crazy will happen and you know but I'm sure we'll all be wrong again so we'll see we're talking with Charlie Clifford sports anchor NBC5 WLWT in Cincinnati it's the ride with JMV 93.5107.5 the fan uh, this is a, a little bit off the wall but it was a big story last week um, how big I was just curious Charlie how big of a figure still does Bob Huggins remain there because not only for his UC ties but I've always kind of viewed Cincinnati as like this weird regional hub where you've got some bleeding in from West Virginia and Kentucky yeah. and Indiana and so anything that happens in those states as well I feel like is relevant to Cincinnati too yeah I mean interesting you bring that up because I wasn't privy to this obviously I remember I can remember the Kenyon Martin days I can remember you know UC in their Air Jordan uniforms and the, the swagger that came along with that but 
I mean, it's clear Bob Huggins is still beloved in this city. Um, you know, the the tributes that went out even after the unfortunate, you know, just mistake that, you know, he should have gotten him fired. Uh, you know, I think there's plenty to be said should he have still had a job after what occurred earlier this month on radio in Cincinnati. Um, but it is very apparent that he made a big impact here, especially if you had any ties to players in the program. I mean, there were not many people coming out saying, I told you so, when he made these, you know, recent, you know, terrible decisions. Uh, there were far more people saying, hey, you know, I, I'm going to bring up a story where Bob went way out of his way to really change my life in a positive way. And, you know, I think everyone's on board with it. We just hope that Bob Huggins gets some help because clearly, um, you know, he can still coach basketball, but there's a lot more that comes with that in life. And that's been the reaction here as the, uh, the home run sound, you know, we're in batting practice here with the Rockies <laughs> and someone must be hitting it into the uh, river here. So nice. Sorry about that. No, yeah. all good. Uh, last thing here, Charlie, because I'll let you get back to BP there at Great America Ballpark. Um, I know you don't miss popping it in cruise on 85 on I-74, doing <laughs> doing the moonshine run every weekend to see your fiance now wife. Um, but, but what do you think so far, just kind of immersing yourself in Cincinnati and now being a permanent resident and, and joining a, a new city and, and a new market? Well, first, you know, I miss Indy a ton. And that starts with AC and Ross and Jason and Brian and Angela and everybody, you know, in that sports room at Channel 8. I mean, we had so much fun. And, um, you know, those were, that was a big call that I got, you know, out of La Crosse, Wisconsin. I'll, I'll never forget that. And, um, and then everybody on the airways with you, too, with, um, you know, David Wood and, Todd Meyer and everybody over there who had my back when, um, you know, we were doing some fun things on the radio side earlier this year. But that being said, you know, since he is, it's feeling like home. I mean, my wife's family has been here for generations. They're still here. Um, and to your point, it's just, you love what you do sports. I feel like I won the freaking lottery. The fact that, you know, a kid who wasn't an exceptional athlete, gets a chance to talk and tell stories like this, you know, that's, it's just crazy to me still, but to be able to have a home life now and to start a family, you know, that that's something that needed to happen and, you know, work will never top that. So for those reasons, just feeling lucky partner, just miss you guys and miss chopping it up because that. That was so fun, um, but you're not far, and I expect you to be making a summer trip down here, maybe with Phil Sanchez, to catch a little baseball at some point. Yeah, we're doing that at some point for sure. It's a, it's a yeah. great weekend trip. It's such an easy drive, and um, and I'll, I'll give you a shout whenever I'm in Cincinnati there. At Char Cliff, uh, Char underscore Cliff, C-H-A-R on Twitter, and like I mentioned, NBC5, WLWT. So proud of you and all your success, brother. Keep killing it out there, and uh, hope to run into you soon. Appreciate Chelsea. Love you and boiler up. Keep it, keep up the great work. <laughs> That's right. Still feels Jeez. weird saying that, but yes, indeed boiler up. <laughs> That's Charlie Clifford.